0: meeting life from a foundation of uh, clarity and and openness really you know taking an interest and being okay that life isn't all about having what you want and not getting what you don't want but life is just life and we are part of it and I think you know when I for the first time really um got that message that was when I met my first teacher Acham Buddha Dasa who is a who was a Thai monk in the forest tradition living in the south of Thailand and I met him for the first time 1988 and that was the message you know I got but just seeing him sitting there I hadn't really heard any seeing what he was saying yet And anyway, he spoke in Thai most of the time, so I wouldn't have understood it anyway at that point. But his being, you know, his presence communicated that resiliency to whatever is happening, he can meet it. He can stay open. He can respond rather than react. And that was exactly what I was looking for and i was by that time i was 30 years old and i had been you know looking in quite a few ways to find some sense of um meaning in life and i had found different things and they had meaning for some time and then it just uh, you know didn't really go anywhere in the way what i was hoping for and then, um, about two years before I met Ajahn Buddha Dasa, or one and a half years actually, my mother died very suddenly from a horse riding accident. And after that, you know, I was, I felt so um, shaken up that I, I was ready for. You know, I was enough vulnerable, and I was enough kind of. Um, shaken up that I was ready to actually perceive what Ajahn Buddha Dasa had to show me. I was ready to take in that mirroring of my own potential, you know, for this resiliency and unshakability of the heart which I hadn't been able to connect yet. Even I was already 30 years old. I had maybe had some glimpses on travels with my parents i remember you know when i was uh, maybe 15 or 16 i went with my parents to east africa on, on a photo safari and seeing some of the tribes there you know the maasai for example who are very kind of you know proud and in the good sense you know and uh, very uh, grounded and uh, beautiful people and it just struck me, you know that they had a presence about themselves and a, and the and the peacefulness and uh dignity which I hadn't seen anywhere before, and actually, that kicked something off in myself, and i i I uh, went to study cultural anthropology because I thought maybe I can learn something about that and then you know going to university it was all about theories and history of anthropology and so many things i didn't really find what i was looking for there but when i was writing my thesis in cultural anthropology i came to thailand and then i stumbled over Dasa, so it was kind of connected but it was a very different uh, place where i found that again you know and not only did I find somebody who exuded that simplicity of presence and connectedness with life, but also I found a whole kind of body of teaching which was in the service of cultivating that. So that was excellent because this is exactly what I needed. I needed, a, you know, like a instructions and, and, and a framework, you know, to work with those instructions and so on and so forth. And and that's what then, uh, you know, um, opened for me the door into Buddhist monasticism because I felt like I needed this uh, strong framework in order to really fully apply myself. And, uh, you know, after staying for some time in Thailand, I was altogether about five years and maybe one and a half years I stayed in ajahn Dasa's monastery. Then, um, you know, he was already very old. He was in his mid-80s and become more and more sick. And I knew it's time to move on and wasn't quite sure how to do this. And then suddenly one day uh, a chanting book of Amaravati Buddhist monastery dropped into my hands in in the foreign meditation hall at uh, this monastery in South Thailand. And I thought, oh, that's the next place to go. Let me, you know, go to Amaravati Buddhist Monastery in England and see how they are doing it. Because I felt I didn't want to train in the East because it was very difficult for women there at that time. More difficult than it is today, I'm sure. So I went to England and... You know, came to that monastery and it was a very good place for training at that time. It was the best place I could find as a, as a Western woman and there was a lot of um, teachers there and a, a, a whole nuns, an order of Siladara which was a you know, sangha of international women from many different countries who trained you know, under the guidance of Ajahn Sumedho, and who was the foremost Western disciple of Ajahn Chah. He is an American who stayed with Ajahn Chah for about, I think, ten years in Thailand, and then started several monasteries for Westerners around the the world, really. And uh, Amaravati in England was, I think, the biggest one, and still is about like 40, 50 uh, sangha members living together from, you know, men and women. And it was a very thriving place at that time when I arrived. There was this sense of possibility of, you know, bringing the teaching and bringing monasticism to the West. And it was very inspiring and uh, I've learned a lot there. So, you know, that Arjun Buddha kind of showed me like a sense of possibility. And he also showed me, you know, that that sense of possibility was very tightly connected with ethics because I wasn't very good at that before I met him. You know, I wasn't even keeping the five precepts at that time and hadn't really understood yet, you know, how many difficulties I'd had in my life were actually connected with that with that simple truth, really. So when I saw him, it just struck me. You know that is that sense of um, unshakability has started with uh, ethics, and then ethics, you know, leading to uh, a calming of the mind and a mind which is calm has much more capacity to see the way things truly are. So I saw that, you know, not by having a verbal teaching, but by just the way he was. And I I got interested, you know, I wanted to do that too. And I knew I needed help. So that took me to England and there was this whole setup, you know, for Westerners to train and with good teachers and a huge library and yeah and a, and a lot of support like on a financial basis because you know there was no, nothing required you just needed to step in and you know become part of the monastic life and that was all what was required if you could do that you were part of it and there was also a lot of uh, openness towards western psychology there was this understanding was quite clear especially among the nuns you know that it's really only possible to use the teachings of the buddha for liberation if there's a certain level of psychological health and if that isn't there we just need to take on some help and that's what we did did a certain amount of group therapy the nun sangha which was very kind of a big learning also wonderful uh opportunities were offered to us. And uh, you know, that was a time of training and I stayed there for about uh, um, I arrived there in 92 and uh, with some short interruptions, you know, for pilgrimage and, and travel I stayed there from 92 till 2009, so 17 years and that was, you know, a great time of formation for me, and for really, you know, using all of those wonderful things I glimpsed through Ajahn Buddha Dasa to really let them sink in and change me. And then, um, about uh, in 2000. 2000- Four, I went for a pilgrimage to India and Nepal and for about a year and uh, I was also in Mumbai and many places you know and uh, oh yeah I forgot something actually 2002 just like two years before I went on pilgrimage I, I met my Vajrayana teacher who who is a, a a Rinpoche who had a monastery in Nepal, and you might not know his name. His name is Shechen Rabcham Rinpoche, and he is the grandson of the famous Dilgo Kiense Rinpoche, whom some of you might have known his name. And he was, uh, I, I went to a Kala Chakra teaching of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, which was given in Austria in 2002, which is where I come from. So I felt like I want to go there. And at the same time, I thought, oh, maybe I get some kind of idea, you know, with which of the four Tibetan schools I have a connection with, because I always felt very drawn to the Tibetan tradition as well. Since the very beginning of my practice, I had that kind of knowing that there was a part of myself which had a connection with that, so I arrived at the Kala Chakra teaching, and then within the first day, I actually met my teacher there, Geshe Rapchan Rinpoche, who was, you know, when the uh, the Dalai Lama teaches, he he always has like Rinpoches from all schools with him on the stage, and he was the representative of the Nyingma tradition, and there was a very clear you know recognition going on and uh, so two years later I visited his monastery in Nepal when I was on pilgrimage and then I continued to come back there several times and I did the finished Ngondro in the Nyingma tradition which is the preliminary practices which is quite a good amount of stuff to do. It took me seven years to do that. And I actually just finished it uh, March this year. I finished my Noindra. Because I had to do it you know, on, on the side so to say. took me a long time. But it felt a very worthwhile thing to do and it felt a real great way of uh, um, what, how would I say that, you know, it, it's a way for me to supplement my my Theravada practice, which, you know, is the foundation of my practice. And I also live as a Theravada bhikkhuni. But there's something for me missing in the Theravada presentation, in particular when it comes, you know, to allowing the the dynamic female energy. There is no space. It was very little, tiny, tiny space. And there's a lot of space in the Vajrayana as far as I can see. So that was very um, fruitful, uh, bringing together those two strands because I feel I needed the energy and the simplicity of the Theravada, but I also wanted that dynamism and the juiciness and the hugeness and the splendor of the Vajrayana. And there was a time, you know, when I just felt really kind of stressed because I didn't know how to bring them together and there was nobody I could really ask. So I had to just uh, allow myself to go through a lot of uncertainty how I would be able to bring it together. And, uh, And actually, you know, I haven't... The only thing what I did is that I wouldn't shut down. I wouldn't just think it's not possible. I would just keep open to it and again and again I felt like sometimes, you know, a bit afraid that my my uh, reputation, let's say, you know, as a Theravada teacher would suffer from it because there is people, Theravadan people who think that Vajrayana isn't really Buddhism, it's Shamanism and all kinds of weird things, you know, going on between the traditions since centuries, really. You know, trying to discredit the other side and all of that stuff. And I had to just leave it all, you know, not get involved in all of that and just trusting that my heart knows. Because, you know, it it already knew with Buddha Dasa, it always knew, you know, the right direction, but it it didn't know the details, of course. And for that, this uh, capacity to stay open was asked for that, you know. And now I'm doing this you know, since quite some time, since yeah 2002, which is yeah you know, almost 20 years. And and for me, it's like I have become that mix. You know, I have integrated it in my own being. And uh, yeah, and I think that's what the practice is. You know, it it isn't about like knowing all of the page numbers where you can find the quotes in the books and you know knowing everything by heart or necessarily you know having a name exactly or or like some kind of clear concept but the, in the end of the day what's most important is you know that inside of ourselves we are becoming the teaching and we're from that place. So, you know, when I came back from that pilgrimage to India, I left, I think, 2004 and came back sometimes 2005, back to Amaravati, and I felt like I don't fit anymore into that, the box is too small, you know. It just doesn't... I could just... You know, I could go in, but I I, I couldn't really sit up anymore there. So I started to kind of, you know, look for... Just like when I was looking, you know, when I knew I had to leave Ajahn Dasa, I was looking for the next thing and then I was trusting, you know, it will appear at one point if I just keep looking, if I just keep open. And yes, it did appear about like 2007 uh an anagarika a novice nun an american uh, arrived in amaravati and she because that was the only place you could train at that time and she you know took became one of the nuns there and but she always said you know we need to go to america and we need to make a monastery there please and you know, of who is coming and then you know, that was also at the time in 2007 when His Holiness the Dalai Lama called a conference on uh, bikuni ordination in Hamburg and it became, you know, more like a public conversation about, yes, it is possible, you know, for women to become bikunis to take higher ordination. Because in Amaravati, women had to be novices for, you know, f- forever, basically. Even the nuns who were there for thirty years, they were still novices because they didn't uh, you know allow and support higher ordination. So yeah, then the the Dalai Lama called the conference, and it was the entry result of the conference was that, yes, there is no obstacles, you know, in the books, <coughs> but the only obstacles are in the minds of the people. And that was the result of the um, conference. And then, you know, I was even feeling more motivated to find a way out. And then 2008, we got an invitation from America to come together with this novice who who was supporting us to come to America and look into the possibility to make a training monastery there. And And then because, you know, of the situation, I was one of the nuns who was responding to that invitation because i felt like you know being so far away from england we will have more space you know to just uh, stretch our wings and yes and we came and you know the first invitation was to make a branch monastery of amaravati and then after staying here for some time it became apparent that you know american women They want full ordination. They just don't want to be perpetual novices forever. So, you know, there was no way to go back. And so in order to go forward, we had to leave our lineage, which we did. Me and uh, Ayananda Bodhi, the co-founder of Aloka Vihara, we went back to England in 2011 and formally gave back our Siladara training and came back here and... uh, he lived for a few years in um, San Francisco on 48th Avenue. That's where I met Diane, she invited us, you know, to visit the prisons. And, and then later on, we came here in 2014, where we are now at Aloka Vihara Forest Monastery, because we are from the forest tradition and we always knew, you know, we're going to aim for the forest, but we had to make connections first in the city and so that you know that path was unfolding you know it had its own intelligence i didn't really have to make it happen i had to just you know have enough uh, clarity of mind and enough uh, willingness and and strength you know to, to stay open with the process in order to see you know where there was an opening and then to just step into it and and i feel you know i wanted to speak about that because the situation we are in right now you know with covid with lots of unresolved material you know for the American people you know kind of erupting into consciousness and onto the streets really and with uh, you know great uncertainty about uh, you know how the president of America is gonna react in his craziness you know if he gets uh, you know um, if he wins the elections or not because he is not a, a healthy man so you know we are like in a very intense situation and you know the reputation and the image america has been projecting into the world just you know the last over many 200 years or 300 years you know the land of great opportunity and renewal and freedom and and equality and all of that stuff. I mean, it's now really, really very obvious that uh, these are wonderful ideals, you know, but if we don't integrate them into our being, they're just going to be... It's a joke, really, but a really bad joke. So... So you know how to deal with with these times because, you know, sometimes it has to become really, really bad, really, really bad before it gets better. And, And then the only thing we can do is to, you know, to work on our resilience to be able to stay with the process and not check out. Because there's always something we can do, even if it's only a small thing. And when I look back onto my path, you know, that's what I have no doubt about. Because I had to sometimes endure, you know, I had to endure for three more years in Amaravati and and feel really out of place and and angry and offended and so on and so on so forth, because things were going in a way where I knew I I don't want to support it. But then I had to find a way, you know, with with not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, but then at the same time, you know, waiting for for the opportunity, for the next step. Because sometimes there is nothing one can do. You know, because certain karmic uh, situations they have to run themselves out before the next opening happens. And, but not turning away from it, you know, that's really important. So that resiliency can only come through repeated and repeated opening and You know, really applying the teaching and allow what is happening to change us, you know. And just seeing how, you know, how really, really uh, it is greed, hatred and delusion, which is at the root of all of this. It's not like a person. It's greed, hatred and delusion at the root of all of this. And you can't steamroll people into letting go of greed, hatred, and delusion. We can't even steamroll ourselves. How could we ever steamroll anybody else? And there has to be, you know, there has to be a subtle amount of joy and there has to be spaciousness in order to see clearly. And sometimes, you know, it's just really intense. and just really seeing that as a that's the fire of the transformation because everything is impermanent and that we are really not not saying that you know classic monastic in the sitting inside the monastery and just you know not acting I do when I can I I, I really want to step out and support sanity in any way I can, and at the same time, it's really important to um, you know, know the difference when to just step back and when to step forward. And I think that's really its wisdom. And, and compassion so you know when that going gets tough it's really important to remember all of those beings who have gone before us and we are just like we are part of that flow of that river of life and we have to come to terms with our vulnerability and it's not a curse you know this vulnerability is our blessing we can say you know because it's because for example if we look at homo sapiens you know there's no other being on this planet which can live in so many different situations so, you know from the antarctic to the rainforest to the equator from you know going up to mount everest and diving down to the bottom of the sea we have incredible adaptability and that's our real asset you know And, and I think, you know, that in, in one way we can, we can say, you know, that the teachings of the Buddha is a, a toolkit which allows us to access that adaptability, you know, of the heart. And to, and to work with it and to kind of uh, increase it more and more until the heart is able to not need to hold on to anything. And then you know from that space we can do our best to help others and ourselves and then more we cannot do even the Buddha couldn't do more than that you know and for me you know thinking in that way is it is gives me a sense of um, Relief, I think. You know, that sense of desperation that it has to be how I want it to be and I was expecting, you know, democracy taking over the planet. It's not happening. It was a great idea. But it can't, you know, because of greed, hatred and delusion because there will always be people. Here because this is samsara, and to just you know take that all in, and don't it's not about then just kind of depressed and forlorn, just kind of giving up. It's not a giving up, it's a letting go. It's different, you know. And I think that's what I saw in Ajahn Buddha Dase, you know, that he had let go, but he certainly hadn't given up. He still had a lot of influence in the world, for good, you know, and Ajahn Sumedo with Amravati, you know, and we here in our small way with Loka Vihara Forest Monastery, we have made a dent into the wall of patriarchy in Buddhism, you know, it's, a great thing and what Diane did with her organization you know for the prison system and and all of you you know who have and and what Bob did you know when he was working I think you know for the, the city of Sacramento for water or something like or air or something like that yeah yeah so you know everybody does something and and together you know that's quite a lot and that's as good as it gets really so i think that's what i wanted to share today and uh, now we have a, a period of walking meditation